One of the pastors here, Wesley and, and Kim, as we've mentioned this morning, are not here this morning. And uh, so I, I am glad to be up on this stage in this position. And sometimes I'm back there, but this morning I'm up here. We're also glad this morning that our city kids are up here with us. Yay, city kids. Um, it's always great on the fifth Sundays of the month. If there's a fifth Sunday, we, we give our... Um, our kindergartners and up a chance to come and experience worship as it happens up here. They worship every single Sunday, so don't get me wrong. It's not like they're skip, skipping worship the other times of the week. No, they have church downstairs. But um, they're able to come and, and be a part of what, come, what happens up here for just a little bit. And in just a few moments, actually some of them are going to help tell the story. They're going to help teach us the passage of the morning. So I'm really excited about that. Well, like I said earlier, this, this week has been a, a week of highs and lows, and uh, many of the lows have, have broken our hearts. We've, we've seen a lot of tragedies in the world, and not just about uh, even just what happened uh, in, in Ferguson and, and, and the resulting uh, things that happened all over, over the United States, but, but other stuff that just really, really breaks our hearts and breaks the heart of God and we it makes us know that that things are not right and um, the scriptures even talk about that the world is groaning like like a, a woman who's in in childbirth because of, of waiting waiting on on Jesus to return so we look at things like that and we know that that life is just a struggle life is a struggle and and, and it can be overwhelming at times and that's why we need God that's why we need each other one Sunday, we received a prayer request from, from a guy named John Tua. Now, John uh, was a part of us here at Tri-Cities. He's had to move away for a job, but his niece and nephew still come. But John is from Liberia. And, you know, this is where it just hits home. We read about these things in the news and think, oh, aren't those poor people over on the other side of the world in such a bad way? But then it hits home when somebody that you know, somebody that you love, somebody that you rub, sho- rub shoulders with is affected by it. And this is what his prayer request said. And this, again, was from a few months ago. Um, and he was fine for us to share it with the church. And we shared it with it before. But it said this. It said, please join me to pray for the people of Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, all in West Africa, as they are struggling with this deadly Ebola virus. To date, the death toll is reported at 3,000 plus, which it's much greater than that now, in Liberia. And whole families are being wiped away daily. Kids are out of schools and the economy is at a standstill. My family, relations, and friends are all, all there and the situation is getting horrible every day. Pray that God heals the land. So our hearts just break. Our hearts break for, for John and our hearts break for those that are suffering from this illness, this, this thing that um, has completely wrecked their lives. What's it like, do you think, to, to suffer with a contagious disease? And then that, not only suffer with that disease, but then to have to be shoved away into a quarantine somewhere, to be shoved away in isolation. As I was preparing for this morning, um, I, I looked and found this Newsweek article from uh, August of this, this year, and it was describing the plight of some of those that are, that are in Liberia and who are suffering uh, from the devastation of Ebola. And they interviewed this one man named Joseph. And Joseph, Joseph is only 30 years old, <coughs> and yet he is now responsible because of the deaths of nine of his family members. He's responsible for 10 children under five. He's got, there's four widows in his family. And so he is struggling to, to try to support this family. 
Not only that, his neighbors refused to speak with him because they blame him for bringing the virus to their village. He was a survivor. He had the virus and he survived. And this is what he said. He said, I am lonely. Nobody will talk to me and people run away from me. He says he's received no help from the government and no food. Then I was reading another article in The Atlantic and, and, and it was interviewing this professor this professor from Hunter College, and uh, Professor Sarit Golub, and she is an, uh, a psychology professor, and she was talking about the effects of illness on people. And she says that even when it's a less serious illness that doesn't even involve quarantine, that it does something to us. It makes us feel bad about ourselves. I thought this was true, what she said. She said, illness has a profound impact on identity. Even when we have a minor ailment like a cold, we often say what? I don't feel like myself. When that illness is contagious, the threat to identity is intensified. And when when a person has to be quarantined, it's intensified even more. And so she goes on to say, the guilt and shame that comes from knowing that you are infectious and even if you take steps to protect others around you, it can be damaging to your identity. The experience of being perceived and treated as a potential vector of disease can rob individuals of their sense of self-worth and reduce them to their illness. Then she goes on to talk about how we know in our heads that the person is not the illness. But for some reason, we make that connection. And for some reason, we make the connection that, oh, if you have an illness, um, there's some kind of moral failing in your life. That's such a sad thing. And the thing is, people who have a a life-threatening disease like this or a disease that is an extended kind of thing have to live with that kind of stigma. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about some people that had that kind of of stigma placed on them, some people that suffered from a disease called leprosy. Leprosy is mentioned over 40 times in the Bible. And people in the Bible, just like uh, sometimes today, people wonder, okay, what did that person do wrong? People in the Bible, if if someone had leprosy, they, they, they thought, well, God cursed them with that. And they got that idea because God did use that disease sometimes in the Old Testament to teach people. If we look at Numbers 12, we see that Miriam, the, the sister of Moses, was, was defying Moses. And God wanted to show her, no, you need to follow him. And so he let her contract this disease. And before Numbers 12 is over, Moses prays and Miriam is cured. So good, good ending to that story there. But that's why people believed that leprosy was a curse from God. In fact, Leviticus 13 and 14 describe the disease. And then they talk about what would happen to a person in in the Israelite camp who suffered from that disease. What would would happen to them. Uh, If we look at Leviticus 13, the uh, 45th and 46th verses, it says, Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their mouth, Uh, face and cry out unclean unclean as long as they uh, have the disease they remain unclean they must this is awful they must live alone they must live outside the camp see this was a lifelong sentence they had to just live outside the camp away from their family and if you're away from your family and away from your community you don't have a job you have no way to support yourself you have no way to feed yourself you're relying on the kindness of strangers and 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 perhaps family members that were willing to take a risk so we're going to look at the story of 10 of these people that had this disease now before we read it from the scriptures 
I have some friends that are going to help us learn it with a little skit here. So, city kids, you ready? All right, come on. They did, a, they did a great job. They just put that together this morning downstairs. So what a great job. All right. Can you imagine, though, what it must have felt like for these 10 people who had, had leprosy? They, they were in a desperate situa- situation. They were separated from their families, separated from, from their livelihoods, and they were relying on the kindness of, of strangers. And then along comes Jesus. Let's, let's go back and read it from the Bible, and we'll talk about it as, as we read it. Uh, Luke 17, 11 through 19, if you have your Bible, or it'll be on the screen. Let's read this together. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now, I'm going to stop a few minutes, by the, uh, just a few times as we read this and, and talk about some things. So, first, let me ask you a question. It says that he was on his way to Jerusalem. All right. Feel free to talk back to me. Do you, who can tell me why was he on his way to Jerusalem? Passover, but ultimately for what? 
The crucifixion, yes, that's right. If you look in, in Luke 18, 31 through 33, it says, Jesus actually tells them very straight out. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. So Jesus is on a mission. He says he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, it also says that he is actually in the border between Samaria and Galilee. This would have been a pretty dangerous place because remember, whenever we talk about Samaritans, usually in the church, we we have to point out that Samaritans and Jews did not like each other at all. They hated each other. It was history. it It was decades long, hundreds of years long hatred between these two groups. So this was not a safe place either. So verse 12 says, And he was going into a village. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Well, I like at first that, that they say it's ten men with leprosy instead of ten lepers. Because, you know, I am not my disease. <laughs> I am not my disease. I do not want to be identified with my disease. I don't want to be identified with my weakness. I, and, and I like how the scriptures pull that out and say, it was ten men who were stricken with leprosy. And then, and then it also says that they stood at a distance. Now, why was that? We read that earlier in Leviticus. It's because it was regulated, right? They had to stay at a distance. And then they cried out in a loud voice, Jesus, have pity, have, have mercy on us. Now, they changed it up a little bit because what were they supposed to be shouting? Unclean, unclean, unclean. But instead, instead of pushing someone away, they knew someone to draw in. They, they drew Jesus in. And so verse 14 says, When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. Again, this was because it was regulated in the law. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. You see, I believe that, that Luke points us out. He, he's a Samaritan. And the Jesus kind of refers to it later. On purpose, because it's showing that this group of ten, they were probably not all Samaritans and they probably weren't all Jews. But this disease had become a great equalizer. This disease had forced them into a community that they did not choose. They had to be together whether they liked one another or not because of a disease. And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? We like to beat up on those other nine, don't we? I mean, ingrates, bunch of ingrates. Why couldn't they come back and thank Jesus? Well, can we imagine where they might have gone? I mean, we're talking this illness lasted for years and years and years. Perhaps it was old friends they needed to go see. Maybe it was a wife that they had not seen for a decade. Maybe it was children that they never saw grow up. And they were anxious to get home. They were anxious to get on with their lives. They were anxious to, to shed not only their disease of leprosy, but also the, the trappings and the stigma of leprosy. And so they ran home. They ran on and, and, and did their life thing. But then it says, Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner, Jesus said? Then he said to them, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. And we can learn a lot from this story. But the first thing that I want to point out is going to, would be something that would be lost on us as English readers, as English speakers of the Bible. 
Some of you may know that the Bible was, uh, in, in this New Testament portion, was originally written in Greek. And so, unless you know Greek, there might be something that you might miss in this text. You see, when Luke and Jesus describe the healing of the ten in verse 14 and 17, they, they say the word clean. But the Greek word is katharizo. Sounds like cathartic, right? Cleansing. This word simply meant to remove all intermingling of filth. It was, it was a technical term. It meant that they were physically clean, physically healed, and that they were ceremonially healed. But then Jesus tells the grateful man that he's been made well. That he's been made well. It's the last word in the passage. And that Greek word is sozo, which actually meant saved. Properly, it was, it was used more in the Bible to, uh, to mean deliver out of danger into safety. It, it, it talks about God rescuing believers from the penalty of the power of sin. So he uses this stronger term to say, you, you have been made whole, complete, saved. You see, there were ten men who were healed in this account, but there was only one that got it. There was only one that got the big picture. Something not only took place with his body, but it was taking place on the inside in his heart. Only one man returned to the source of his healing before moving on with his life. Only one man recognized who that healing came from and then responded with heartfelt gratitude. Only one man was told then to rise up and to go because his faith had made him whole. Complete. Saved. And what happened to this man is a pattern for us in our lives. You see, we, we, we have a, a disease, a sin problem. A heart disease. And we come to Jesus. We give our lives to Him. We say, Jesus, You're the only one that can heal me. You're the only one that can forgive me. You're the only one that can send me on my path to be able to, to not sin anymore. And so we come to him, and we receive that from him. But then what happens? What happens? We begin to forget. We begin to, to go on and live our own lives. What this, what this man is, is, is calling us to do, and the pattern that we can see here, is to make sure that we live a grateful life. I love um, what this blogger, um, his name is Dwight Longenecker. I love that name, <laughs> Longenecker, and I'm glad it's not mine. Um, He wrote this. He said, Leprosy is a perfect metaphor for sin. It starts as an invisible infection and then slowly dominates one life. It is invisible to start with, but eventually the person becomes deformed and ugly. And furthermore, the body becomes numb. Sin makes us numb to the abundance of life and, and we become dull and unfeeling. Sin also isolates us from others. Selfishness cuts us off from others and we end up alone with our addiction, alone with our sin, alone with our poor selves. Sin is a disease of the heart and it separates us, it isolates us. It it not only isolates us from God, that's what we usually concentrate on, but if if, if you are a sinner, if you sin, it isolates us from one another. You know, when the the Ten Commandments said, do not lie, it's not just about us sinning against God, but what happens when that person finds out you lied about them? You're isolated, you're separated, you're, you're, you're torn apart. It's a lonely place. And not only that, but sin, just like leprosy was for these men, sin is the great equalizer. All these men were shoved into one community because they had leprosy. 
we're all shoved into one community because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have this disease, this heart disease. And then along comes someone who can offer true healing, who can offer restoration, who can offer hope, who can offer reconciliation to him and to one another. And he he gives us that. And so a constant pattern in our life then should be what happened with this grateful man with leprosy. That as he continually forgives us, that we continually return, that we continually return to the source of our healing and salvation. I love that old Andre Kraut song that says, Take me back. Take me back, dear Lord. Take me to the place where I first received you. Take me back. Take me back, dear Lord, where I first believed. The Israelites were, were, were told in, in Deuteronomy 6.12, Be careful. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. We forget. And so we've got to return to the source of our salvation. That's got to be the pattern in our lives, to return to Him, to return to Him. And not only just return, but to recognize and respond. Psalm 118.21 says, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You became my salvation. We thank Him for what He has done. I um, recently have been talking a lot with a friend of mine who is experiencing trouble in his his marriage, um, an impending divorce. And uh, Christian family, it's a difficult, difficult situation. And as we've talked, you know, always in a situation like this, you look back with, with regret. What if I had only? What if I could have? And so I told him about preparing this sermon and everything. And he said, Jamie, here's what I want you to tell them. Tell them that gratitude that is not expressed doesn't exist. If you don't say it and do something about it, you don't mean it. If it's not expressed, and it's not just words, it's not just words, but if you're not showing your gratitude, it it doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. And so we are called to return to recognize who, who the salvation comes from and respond with, with a life of gratitude. And then we're told to rise up and go. Jesus loved to use these words, by the way, when he, when he would heal. When he healed the, uh, the blind man, blind man named Bartimaeus, he said, go, your faith has healed you. Go, don't stay here, go. The bleeding woman in Mark, Mark 5, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And to you today, he's saying, rise up and go. Rise up and go. Rise up and go and live your life, but live your life in, in, in a life of gratitude. Don't stop the gratitude here on the floor, but keep it going. Rise up and go and live a life showing people how grateful you are to me, the source of your salvation, the source of your healing. Faith must have a gratitude response. So what does a thankful faith look like? Well, there's four things I want to point out very quickly. And one of these things is that it doesn't have to be commanded. A faithful, a thankful faithfulness does not have to be commanded. Notice in the, in the scripture, did, was there anywhere where Jesus said, okay, go show yourselves to the priest, and then I want you to come back and get on the floor at my feet and thank me. Was there anywhere in that scripture that you read that? I didn't read it. 
Maybe you have a different version than I do if you read it. Because he didn't command that because a thankful faith doesn't have to be commanded. Because it comes from a deep place. It comes from a deep gratitude. That's the second thing. It comes from just this deep place in the heart where it just springs out because you're so grateful. If you're truly grateful, it, it, you don't have to be told now. You know, my mom used to do this, you know, when we would get Christmas presents, you know. She'd say, okay, have you written your thank you cards? Have you written your thank you cards? Have you written your thank you cards? Of course, I hadn't written my thank you cards. I, I was grateful for the gift, but was I truly grateful? No, because it had to be commanded. It had to be commanded. It had to be commanded. And then I love, I love this thought. I, a, a thankful faith is not concerned about what onlookers think. This man came back and he threw himself on the floor in front of Jesus. Threw himself on his face. He didn't care what the other nine thought. He didn't care what Jesus' disciples thought or anybody else. He was just so filled with gratitude and glorifying God that he just said, I don't care. I don't care what you think. It reminds me of, of when David in, in 2 Samuel 6 is, is dancing before God in his underwear, kind of. <laughs> and, and he is in front of everybody and just uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back and he was so excited and wanted to worship so big, he is just dancing and he's dancing and he's dancing. And, and Michael, his wife, begins to make fun of him. It's like, what is this fool doing? What is this idiot doing? And he hears her. And I love his response, and it should be our response. He says, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I'll become more undignified than this. You think this is undignified? I don't care. I don't care because I'm so grateful. I'm so filled with gratitude. I don't care what the onlookers think. And then sometimes a a thankful faith, it just goes against the norm. We talked about last week uh, when we finished up the Life Song series, Psalm 136, and how that sometimes life doesn't feel very good. There are things in, in our lives that we don't feel very thankful for. But, but we go against the norm. And as, as 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, we give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. All circumstances we give thanks Because we're thinking back to the source of our salvation. We're thinking there's a bigger picture. We're thinking we know the God who heals. I like this quote. It was it was a John F. Kennedy quote from back, you know, they get they have a the presidents have a Thanksgiving proclamation every year. And back in nineteen sixty three he said this As we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. But to live by them. So my question for you today is, what will your rise and go look like? When Jesus says to you, all right, I've healed you, I've saved you, I've delivered you, rise and go, what, what is that going to look like? What is your thankful faith going to look like every day? How will you keep living out your gratitude? All right, I want to make you uncomfortable for a couple minutes. Well, some of you will be like, yeah, the, the extroverts are going to be like, this is, this is for me, and then... Some of you are dying inside right now. But here it is. I want us to, to have some impromptu small groups. I want us to break up into groups of three or four. You can just kind of turn around in your chair. Um, and I want us to a- uh, talk about two different questions. Um, thanks, Thanksgiving Day, 
Uh, my family and I, we ate, ate out because that's what we do. That's what we like to do. And my wife did something very old-fashioned. She goes, okay, it's Thanksgiving. What are you grateful for? <laughs> so we went around the table and everybody had to tell what they were grateful for. So that's what I want you to do first. I want you to just say, and it doesn't have to be a church thing. It doesn't even have to be a big thing. It could be, I am grateful for, you know, this, this shirt. You know, it could be whatever. But, it, but what are you just grateful for in your life right now? And then secondly, share with the group, how, how are you going to live out your gratitude this week? What's one thing that you can just do to show God that you're grateful? One thing that you can do. Now, I don't want you to get in groups of larger than three or four because we don't have all the time in the world, okay? We only have just, I'm going to give you about six minutes to do this, okay? So if you would, right now, would you break up into groups of three or four? And, uh, yeah, if this makes you uncomfortable, I am so sorry, so sorry. Introduce yourselves. Just one more minute. Amen. All right. So some of you probably didn't get to go, so you can grab one another after church and finish the, finish the thought if you didn't get to finish. But, but, but here's the deal. 
Here's the thing. We are, we are not just here to talk, but we're here to walk out of here and walk it. We're, we're, we're here to, to be encouraged and spur one another on, the Scripture says, to good works. And part of that is living a grateful life. And sometimes you have to be intentional about it. You have to say, you know what, I am grateful. I really am grateful. And I need to start showing it. I need to start showing it. And so, so you walk out of here and you begin to show it in, in, in many and various ways. And so I want to encourage you to do that. So right now what we're going to do, we're going to actually uh, start transitioning into our time of, of communion around the Lord's table. And every week we are able to show our gratitude when we gather around this table. In verse 16 in our passage, what we were just reading, the word thanks is used. Jesus is saying, there's only one, one, one that's returned to thank me. And that Greek word is eucharisteo. Eucharisteo. And it just properly meant thankful for God's good grace. It simply meant that. I'm thankful for God's good grace. Well, there's some church bodies, some church denominations that actually call communion Eucharist. Eucharisteo. And they get that from this whole idea that when we come around the table, we are thankful. 1 Corinthians 10 calls the cup that we drink the cup of thanksgiving. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about how when Jesus, when He instituted this, that He came and He gave thanks. That He gave thanks for, what, for what, who God was. He gave thanks for what He would be doing. Even knowing the excruciating pain He would be going through, He gave thanks. So today, as we approach the Lord's Supper, I want, I want you to give thanks. There's two tables in the front, two tables in the back. We're going to do one more little quirky thing that we don't usually do every week. When you sat down, you may have sat on a thank you card. <laughs> what I'd love for you to do is before you, you go to the table to take the um, cup and the bread, which is the blood and body of Jesus, that you could just write a sentence, just one sentence. It doesn't have to be a paragraph, just a sentence that, that just expresses your thanks to God. If you want to, you can leave it on the table. We won't read these. You can leave it on the table as an expression of thanks, or you can take it with you. Feel free to take it with you. Maybe you can post it somewhere in your car or on your mirror or something like that where you can just be thankful, have that gratitude every day. It's up to you what you do with the card. But would you just write a, write a sentence of thanks? The band will uh, start playing after I sing, after I, the band will start playing and singing after I pray. But just sit in your seats for just a moment. There's also buckets on the table for us to be able to express our gratitude that way if you've come ready to give. But let's be like that one, the grateful one. Let's live a life of faithful thanksgiving. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you. And those are not just words. We're thankful for your salvation. We're thankful for your, the body of Christ here in this place. We're thankful for the way that you bless us, not just materially, but the way that you bless us from the inside out. We thank, we're thankful for the peace that you give. And so God, we, with our hearts full of gratitude, want to approach the table this morning. We take the cup of thanksgiving. We eat the bread that is your body. And we're grateful. Jesus name
Amen.